Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, I already quoted to you. I quoted again, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What I thought we would do today is just simply take that verse as our outline. You could divide it into four phrases. We'll look at those four phrases in order, and then we'll put it all back together at the end to see what it's teaching, what it is that Mark is trying to explain to us. That first phrase there is the beginning the beginning. My question for you this morning, as we read that, we're going to look at all of Mark over the next few weeks, but as we read that verse, the beginning, my question is, the beginning of what? The beginning of what? It's certainly not the beginning of Jesus. If you read Matthew and Luke, then you know that Matthew and Luke um, talk about the birth story, right? There's the, the virgin and, and the shepherds and the, the star at night, all of that's going on and that's not included in Mark's gospel. So this isn't the beginning of Jesus. If you read John's gospel, then you know that Jesus existed before time. This is not the beginning of Jesus. It's also not the beginning of God's narrative, God's redemptive story throughout history. Since the fall, God has been working behind the scenes in visible and invisible ways, bringing about the redemption of man, working through Abraham and Israel to restore that relationship with God. So what is this? It's not the beginning of Jesus. It's not the beginning of God's redemptive story. So what is it? As I alluded to, Genesis 1 and John 1 begin in a similar way. Genesis 1 says the beginning, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And in John 1 it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. John is clearly, when you read John, he is clearly trying to bring up to your mind Genesis chapter 1. That's what he's trying to do. Mark is not. Mark is doing something different, something new. When he says this is the beginning, he's using similar language, but he's emphasizing something different. It could be that Mark is just saying, this is the beginning of the story. Like I'm about to tell you the beginning. This is where you start, right? And he talks about John the Baptist and, and the baptistry. It could just be, this is the beginning of my story. That's one way to understand what Mark's saying. But I'll tell you what I think it is. Here's what I think it is. Uh, here's what other scholars agree it is. Mark is telling you that the story that I'm about to tell you, not the next three stories in Mark chapter 1, 1 through 15, but the story that I'm about to tell you through these 16 chapters, this is just the beginning. Everything that happens after this is changed by what it is that I'm about to tell you. I get that for a number of reasons, but if you look at Mark chapter 16, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you, but Mark chapter 16 goes all the way to verse 20. Some scholars believe that it actually ends in verse eight. For a number of reasons, I agree with them. I think that Mark actually ends in Mark chapter 16, verse eight. And we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 16, but this is what Mark 16, verse eight says. And then they, went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. End. That's how the story ends. That's how Mark's gospel ends. I think it's a powerful writing. It's just, it's one of the most amazing storytelling in all of the Bible that that's how Mark's story ends. He says, this is the beginning. And then he gets all the way to the end and he says, and they ran out of the tomb and they didn't tell anybody. 
But here's the assumption. Here's what you have to ask from that story. Obviously they told somebody, right? Eventually they told somebody, Mark found out and he wrote it down and the early church found out. And furthermore, you found out, you found out about the God. It didn't end there. It didn't stop there. In other words, what Mark is saying is what I'm about to tell you is just the beginning. It's just the beginning of something new, something different, something exciting. I'm about to tell you something that changed everything. Have you ever been in an interview or met somebody and they say to you, so tell me about yourself. You ever heard that question? So tell me about your total stranger. Have you ever wondered where you're supposed to start? Like, where do you start? I heard one person I was interviewing for a job once and I told them, so tell me about yourself. And they said, well, I was born at a young age in Dallas. And I thought that was funny. It was comical. Everybody was born at a young age. So, so now the next time somebody asks you that, that's how you start that. How do you start that? What if I was to tell you if you didn't know me? So tell me about yourself. And I said, well, in 2004, I met Jackie Canada and it changed everything. It would tell you a lot about my perspective. It would tell you a lot about the way I view life and the way life happened to me. But everything before that and everything after that all hinges on that moment in 2004 when I met Jackie Canada. That's what Mark is doing. He's saying, he's not saying that nothing happened before this. But what he's saying is everything changed after this. But what changed in the beginning? I'm hooked. I'm ready. Mark, tell me. The beginning of the what? Gospel. The beginning of the gospel. Now, like beginning and Christ and these other words that we're going to look at, gospel has different nuances to it. The word itself has different understandings to it. And you're going to learn these. The first one is this. Gospel could be, when people are referring to gospels, they could refer to a literary genre. It's a literary genre. So your Bible is made up of different sections. We have the history, we have the, the, the prophets, we have the wisdom literature like Ecclesiastes and Psalms, Proverbs. We have uh, the minor prophets. We have the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are different than the epistles like Philippians and, and, and um, Ephesians. And they're also different than the apocrypha, or not the apocrypha, but the apocalyptic literature like Revelation and Ezekiel and parts of Daniel. These all are literary styles. When you refer to the gospels, you're referring to a certain kind of book, a certain kind of writing. It's biographical writing about Jesus and the life of Jesus. That's what we mean when we say the gospels, right? There's four of them, three from a similar point of view, the synoptic gospel and then John. So we have this idea of a literary style and that could be, I guess, what Mark is doing, right? This is the beginning of my gospel. There's four of them. Mark is the first to write. And so that could be what he's saying, except for that's not, that's not what he's saying. Because he is the first to write a gospel, he wasn't referring to it as a literary style yet because it was his, he was the first. So that's not what it was. Another way, and this is more common. This is the way that you most often use the word gospel. It would be like if I told you to go and share the gospel this afternoon. Find somebody and have a gospel conversation. In that, we're talking about the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. The reality that we are conceived and born rebels to God. And that if we will repent and believe in Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven. And that in the work, in the completed work of Jesus Christ, we can live this life walking with the Holy Spirit and spend eternity with our good, good Father in heaven. That's the gospel message. That's a good message. And that's what we mean when we talk about the gospel. 
If I told you to go and share the gospel, you wouldn't go out and start quoting Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? You wouldn't quote all four books. You would tell that message. There's the literary style. There's the message of hope in Jesus. Neither of those are what Mark's doing. All right, there's a third one. In antiquity, in history, especially with the Hebrews, the word gospel had a particular meaning. It meant good news, there's a king. Good news, there's a king. Most often you'll hear preachers talk about gospel and you'll say, they'll say, they'll say that the word evangelion means good news. And it does, but it meant a specific good news. Good news, there is a king. When Emperor Augustus was born, when Roman Emperor Augustus was born, the message, the word that went out was evangelion to the world, gospel to the world. Didn't need to say anything else. It was just good news that the new king had been born. So it's not the same to say that gospel means good news like any good news. It's not the same to say like, hey, good news, your sister had a baby unless your sister's the queen, then that doesn't mean gospel, all right? That's not the same. It had a specific meaning. Good news, there is a king. And that's what's happening in here. You can even see it in Isaiah 52, verse seven, the verse that you guys read together just a minute ago in the worship set. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald. Keep that in mind. The herald, the person who goes before, who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, that's the gospel message, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, what is the message? Your God reigns. Your God is king. When Isaiah's message was delivered to the people, they were in exile. They were beat down, they were tortured, they were uh, hungry and thirsty. They needed somebody to rescue them. They needed a hero. And the message from the herald came to them and said, gospel. You have a king who will restore you and defeat your enemies, which is sin and death. That's the gospel message. That's the gospel idea. And this is strongly supported by what Mark is about to write. Remember I said there's that first line and then there are three stories. The first one is about John the Baptist. The second one is about Jesus's baptism. And the third one is about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. All three of those undergird they support the idea that what Mark is trying to communicate is, hey, good news, you have a king. And this changes everything. John the Baptist was depicted as the herald that goes before the king. The forerunner is the way that we call it. Anytime that a king was gonna visit a city, they would send a, a delegation. They would send people ahead of him that would let everybody know the king's coming, you better get ready. Put on your good clothes. Let's straighten out this street. Let's move some of them branches. Let's get everything ready. Clean that up. This person would go before them. And if you read that beginning there of Mark, that's exactly what John is doing. Making the path straight for the king who is coming behind him. The second story is about the baptism, which alludes to or signifies the anointing of Jesus as king. And the third story is about him being led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness where the king who is not afraid of anybody, unprovoked, takes the fight to the enemy out in the wilderness and he beats Satan. What Mark is telling you is, hey, this changes everything. You have a king. That's the gospel message. So then you gotta ask yourself, anybody would, well, then who is the king? Who is the king? Well, you already know the answer. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus 
Christ. I love teaching y'all words and I'm teaching you a bunch of words today. So don't feel like it's not on a test. I'm not gonna test you, but it's just good to know. Jesus is the Greek word for the Hebrew name. Does anybody know? Joshua. I like that fact. That is a biblical truth. Me and him are named the same. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. It means that God saves. Jehovah says, Yeshua. It's that God saves. And there's this theme all throughout Jesus' story in which Jesus is the good and better. He is the new and the better. Over and over, what Jesus is constantly depicting through his actions and his words is that he's the new and better Elijah, that he's the new and better Moses, that he is the new and better Joshua. In this story, at least three times, they mention the wilderness. And if you know your Israeli history, if you know your Old Testament Bible, they always have this love-hate relationship with the wilderness. It's the wilderness that they wandered around. It's from the wilderness that the prophets came. It's from the wilderness that they traveled across the Jordan River and went into the promised land. What Mark is trying to depict to you is this, that this Jesus is the new and the better. He's coming on the scene and he is better. He's the chosen one. He is better than all those that came before him. Jesus Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. Messiah and Christ are both the same word. And when you hear preaching, you'll often hear the joke. It's sort of a comical thing that Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. That's true. And yet... Over time in the early church, Christ became part of Jesus's formal name. There were a lot of people named Jesus, a lot of people named Yeshua. And so when they say Yeshua Christos, what they were talking about was a specific person, this specific person, Jesus Christ. This is the message, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a specific one, not any old Jesus, this Jesus. And regardless of whether or not it was or became a part of his name, It, like the other terminology, was rooted in history. There was this historic meaning behind Christos, or Mashiach, in the Old Testament, and it meant anointed, the anointed one. Usually in the Old Testament, in Hebrew uh, tradition, in Hebrew history, they would anoint a person with oil, and it was a prophet, a priest, or a king. The prophet or priest or king was anointed with oil, and that person was signified to be set apart by God and empowered by God. So Moses doesn't do what Moses does apart from the power of God. Elijah doesn't do what Elijah does apart from the power and the distinction of God. In 1 Samuel 16, 12 through 13, when God was telling the prophet that David was going to be the new king, this is what he said. Then the Lord said, anoint him for this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And listen to this part. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. And then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Anoint him with oil and the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him from that day forward. That's significant because what do we see in verse 10? Verse 10 of Mark chapter one. And as soon as he, Jesus, came up from the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descended on him like a dove. It's not as if Jesus wasn't divine before this moment. It's not as if Jesus wasn't the prophesied Messiah before this moment. It's just that at this moment, at his baptism, he is anointed the chosen one publicly for everyone to see that this is the one that God chose. And that changes everything. 
So this is the new and better everything. Everyone before this was a shadow of Jesus who would come and led up to this moment in which this one, Jesus, is chosen by God to do what they could not do, to free the people from sin and death and to bring glory to God. At this point, Mark is saying, sit back and listen. I'm about to tell you something in which everything changed. The King Jesus arrived, but there's one more phrase. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Up to that moment, now I know we love Jesus. We're Christians. We respect him. We venerate him as we should. He is God. But up to that moment, that phrase is pretty weak. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is and could have been said any number of times before that. There could have been a moment in which somebody said, hey, this is the beginning of the gospel of King David. This is the beginning of the good news that King David is born. This is the beginning of the good news that King Josiah is born. And any number of other kings chosen by God to do a task, to be the king, to be the prophet, to be the priest. This is good news. This is the beginning of their story. But this one is different. This one is unique because it's not just the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That phrase puts all the power into this opening line. This one is different. True, throughout history, different people have been called the Son of God. Uh, different epic leaders, people who were notable, historic figures, heroes, kings, philosophers, and sometimes were referred to as the sons of God. In fact, Israel in Hosea 11 and Exodus 4 is referred to as the son of God. And in 2 Samuel 17, David is referred to as the son of God. All of that is signifying this ultimate need for the one true son of God. But it's not till verse 11 in which God himself says, this is my beloved son in him I am well pleased. In other words, what this means is that Jesus is not just any Son of God. He is the Son of God. It's not just that he is any of the chosen. He is the chosen with the ability to succeed at what none of them were able to do. This changes everything. In Star Wars, Anakin Skywalker was supposed to be the Jedi Knight that would bring balance to the force, but he succumbed to the dark side and eventually fell because he was weak, because he was human. Fictional, but just because he was weak, right? And the reality is that whether it's, it's fictional or true, human heroes are limited. They can only do so much. And that's the point throughout history. There have always been these men and these women that rise, that inspire us, that grab big crowds to follow behind them, that lead in such a way that make you think just for a moment, this is the one. This is the one that's going to turn our country back. This is the one that's going to save us. This is the one that's going to bring sons and fathers back to good relationships and daughters and mothers. This is the one that's going to restore. And we put that label on all sorts of people. But in the end, even the best are just humans. And they are weak. And they point us towards the need for something greater, something better toward God toward the Son of God. And that's the reality. A brand new thing is happening, Mark says. And he wants to tell you about it. The king who is God has arrived and is ready to defeat the enemies of humanity, sin and death. 
And the beautiful thing about the gospel, the beautiful thing about this story of King Jesus is that his mission both benefits and invites us into it. When Jesus arrives, he defeats our greatest enemies and he invites us to participate in that, that same mission that we would take on the mantle to go and to rescue those who are far from God, to go and to share the gospel message with other people that he saved us so that we could bring that saving uh, power, that saving word to them empowered by the Holy Spirit. Look at the very ending, 14 through 15 of verse, of chapter one. This is the ending of the introduction to Mark in which it says, and after John was arrested, after the forerunner, after the herald is off the scene, you don't need the forerunner anymore once the king has arrived. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming, speaking, preaching the good news of God, the gospel of God. The time is now. And the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. That's how we participate. That's how you are invited in. That's what you do. That's how you participate in this King Jesus mission. You see, victory for Jesus went through the path of death. That he would die and by his own power rise again. And it's that same path that we join him on. That we repent that we turn away from our own little kingdoms and we acknowledge and we submit to the one true king. And that when we do that, that our rebellion is forgiven, that we are no longer enemies of the crown, that we are no longer staring at the death penalty, that he accepts us in, not just as no longer guilty, but now innocent, not just as no longer enemies, but now family. And that message is good news. And that's why we call it the gospel. You have a king and he is a good king and he loves you. Submit to him. That's a good message and it's worth pursuing. I think the one strongest application points here is that we recognize that the reality that we have a king and that he is a good king is a good thing. Everything about our culture and our worldview and our perspective says that the idea of having this supreme monarch in control of our lives is stifling. It's inhibitive. It's something that we should shake off and live our own lives, cut our own path and be our own people, right? But the reality is that we are built for this king, that we need this king. Apart from this king, we don't live happy, free lives of success and surplus. Apart from this king, we are enslaved, dead and dying. And that's why it is good news that the king is here and he came to beat the enemies we could not beat. So submit to that king. That's a good thing. That is good news. We need that king. And so we ought to live each day freed by the king to live our lives the way that he instructs, the way that he rules, the way that he created us to live by his standards that are good. When we visited Ethiopia in, in order to adopt our youngest son, I, uh, I was surprised by the culture and the people and everything there. You just, one of the things you gotta know about me is I just don't like to travel. 
I don't. I'm the kind of person that can be completely fine with the lower 48. I don't even need to see the other two. If I can't drive to it, I don't really want to go. And I really don't want to go if it's more than three hours. I'm also the kind of person that doesn't want to eat any other, like, like I know a lot of people are like, oh, I love cultural food. I love to, not me. I don't make them eat my food. I will eat my own food. All right. So it's fine. I like it just the way it is. Um, I can, I can live the rest of my life within three hours of my house, right? That's just, that's just the way that I'm wired. But in order to adopt, we had to go. I had to go. So I went and man, the people in Ethiopia were some of the most beautiful and kind and sweet people I've ever met in the entire planet, right? But the food wasn't what I would prefer. And there was other things about their culture that I just didn't prefer. One of them, most of all, was the way that they drive. I like to drive, but they scared the mess out of me. We had this person that would drive us from place to place, and I was convinced I was going to die. I was convinced I was going to die and surprised that I didn't. They didn't stop. They didn't yield. There was nothing. There was this huge roundabout with several multiple lanes and exits and they didn't yield. They didn't stop. Some of you think the roundabouts over in front of Sam's are scary. They're nothing, nothing compared to this. All right. It's like you just put a giant roundabout in the middle of all the interstates in America and then just let people go. Right. This is not the roundabout that we were on. This is just a normal intersection in Addis Ababa. It was just scary. It was just the way they live. And that's just their life. Listen, I love, I love, or in that experience and others, I have had this profound sense of appreciation for rules and order. I love to drive. You know that. I love driving. I love the feeling of driving. I love that people stay in their own lanes that there's a speed limit that reduces how fast someone's gonna come up over the hill behind me, that I can assume the actions of others at traffic lights and stop signs. And I appreciate that we take turns. All of this freedom, all of this joy that I have in driving is made possible because of rule, not in spite of it. Otherwise we would all just be victims of constant chaos. In a very real way, eternally true, we have a good king and that king is the chosen one sent by God and is God. And he has taken on and ultimately in this story that we're going to study, in this story defeats our greatest enemies, death, sin, and Satan. And that's very good news, but it's just the beginning. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.